Welcome to Important Not Important, a very special episode. My name is Quinn Emmett, and this is science for practical science today for people who give a shit. Uh, typically in our weekly conversations, I take a deep dive with an incredible human or two who's working on the front lines of the future uh, to build a radically better today and tomorrow for everyone. Um, along the way, uh, and this is very pertinent today, we like to discover stories and tips and strategies and such you can use uh, to get involved and to become more effective uh, for yourself, your family, uh, your city, the jet stream, the whole thing. So today we've got a very special Q&A episode. Context is, as the IRA, which I still can't believe exists, continues to bear fruit across America, and there's much more to come there, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit today. And as we continue our partnership with the fine folks at Rewiring America, I have received a hell of a lot of questions that I cannot answer, because I don't do these things with my hands. I'm just a person who reads about them and then talks about them. So I thought it was prudent, if not necessary, to take the first big batch of listener questions, the ones that seem to apply to the most folks, and put them to the experts who we have with us today. And we're gonna be publishing this in audio and video, and I guess it's not print anymore. I'm so old, it's on the web. Whatever helps the most folks. And then we'll probably do another one in a month or two or something like that as these questions and answers continue to roll in and people upgrade their homes. If you've sent in your questions and we didn't answer them today, we'll, we'll try to get to them next time. If these questions and answers uh, don't apply to your situation, please send yours in uh, to questions at importantnotimportant.com and we will attempt to get to them next time. Um, there, This is definitely not uh, a situation where one size fits all. So my guest today, you're going to recognize one of them. John Semelhack is back, probably against his better judgment. John is our returning guest. He is the co-owner uh, with Neil Camporetto of the Comfort Squad. They are a home performance contracting and consulting firm uh, serving Charlottesville, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, and when I beg him, Williamsburg, Virginia. He is a, I mean, truly the tip of the sword on this stuff. Uh, he is a pioneering practitioner of the Electrify Everything Movement, as Dave Roberts puts it, and everyone else puts it at this point. Um, the self-declared Minister of Heat Pumps uh, for Southeast Virginia, which brings me endless joy. I need to get him a little desk thing that says that. We've also got, for the first time today, if he's not regretting it already, Joel Rosenberg from Rewiring America. He's part of the Special Projects team there, part of our partnership. He's an educator and an entrepreneur. He's got a mechanical engineering degree from MIT, which I can't even begin to understand what those classes are like, and a master's from the Columbia Graduate School of Journeyman. So gentlemen, welcome to the show. I'm excited to really help some people uh, today. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, Glenn. It's great to be back. We are all ready to go here. So folks, the format is pretty simple. I'm going to ask questions that you wrote in. We've edited them lightly where we've needed to, and sometimes we haven't. And if it seems like they're dragging on, that's mostly so that these gentlemen have all the detail they need to answer it, but also so folks can really understand both how necessary and important and beneficial it is to do these upgrades, to electrify your home everywhere you can, but also that we are aware this is not a one-size-fits-all approach. As much as there's five or six or whatever sort of verticals that we can all sort of tackle, your situation is going to be very specific to your home, whether you're an owner or a renter or if you built it or you're the 10th owner or you've done some work or you don't have the money to do some work or whatever it might be. So again, if this doesn't answer your questions, please send them on in. Um, but I hope that these do help some folks. So fellas, are you ready to do this thing? Yes, ready to go. Rock and roll. So number one, we're going to start you off with an easy one. This is from Inca. Sometimes I have a city I don't. What are the health risks of gas fireplaces? 
I tend to leave mine on most of the day and evening to help heat the living room area, I do have a proper carbon monoxide monitor. How's that? Gas cooktops have gotten a lot of attention lately. You know, your gas stove causing uh, asthma and indoor air pollution. To some extent, your gas fireplace is also causing indoor air pollution because you're burning fossil fuels in your living room or in your kitchen. The kitchen is not required to be vented outside legally. The fireplace is required to be vented outside, which is good, just like the other appliances that run on gas in your house, uh, your furnace, and your water heater. But, uh, you know, we probably should decide that we don't want to burn toxic stuff near our kids in our living spaces unless they're properly vented outside, and then beyond that, not at all. But the other problem is that the fireplace, I learned this from listening to the previous episode with John, where the problem is the hole in the chimney from the gas fireplace. So John... Uh, yeah, that to... was something I discovered when John was like, yeah, you have an enormous hole in your house and it's been here the whole time. Yeah, just to add on to what Joel was saying, um, there are actually quite a few gas fireplaces that are unvented. So they're sold as unvented. They're actually marketed that way because they're easy to install. Probably where they're legal may vary from state to state. I'm not sure exactly, but I know that they are relatively common uh, as in, in new construction, both as well as retrofits. It's pretty wild, but it's a similar situation to gas stoves. If you have an unvented fireplace, you're burning that fossil fuel inside your home. Well, you definitely have carbon dioxide, uh, which may be problematic. You may have carbon monoxide. You're going to have excess moisture in the house, particulates, likely nitrogen oxides as well. So several different, you know, potential health risks. Uh, in terms, just quickly, in terms of the carbon monoxide sensor or monitor, make sure it is a low-level carbon monoxide sensor so that you are warned about a problem while it's still a relatively low risk or, or it's not an acute or life and death risk. The ones that are combined with uh, smoke alarms, they're UL listed and they have a very high threshold for where they alarm and they really only alarm as you start to get into a life or death situation. And so if you have any kind of fossil fuel burning, any kind of thing that you burn at all in your house, including a wood stove or a regular wood burning fireplace, get a low level carbon monoxide alarm that will let you know of a problem when you're down well under 10 parts per million. So that's super interesting. Two things. One, they sell these things unvented. Like, I don't understand. I mean, there's a lot of questions I have about today's landscape, but holy shit. Yeah, yeah. And two, I think that was actually really interesting. And if you guys have specific recommendations later, you don't have to have them live. We can throw them in the show notes. But um, so you're saying the combo smoke alarm ones, uh, the threshold is actually pretty high. So it's like by the time that goes off, it's not great. Is that correct? Yeah. The reason for that, my understanding is to prevent nuisance 911 calls. If it's not life or death, you shouldn't be calling 911. But a lot of people, if their CO alarm goes off, they're going to call, uh, which, you know, it's understandable. But if you understand that your low level sensor is catching stuff very early and it's not life or death, then you call your HVAC company or, you know, whoever services your fireplace or somebody who can repair your gas stove or even better, get rid of it and electrify. Right. All right. Well, we will uh, include a recommendation for a good low-level CO2 monitor in the show notes uh, for folks who want to go and find one. Okay, next one. Again, starting you guys off easy here. This is from Ben. When is the new IRA rebate program going to be rolled out? I want to install a heat pump, but I need the upfront rebate 
to make it work. The rebates are aiming to be rolled out by the end of this year, hopefully, or the beginning of next year. These are the upfront discounts that are available to uh, low and median, medium income people. But the tax credits are available now. If you are looking to buy something, you need the upfront discount, then you are going to have to wait until it comes from the federal government and goes through your state uh, government. But if you are not eligible for that, and you could check our calculator, Rewiring America has an, uh, an IRA calculator that will let you see how much you might be able to save on different appliances based on your uh, location and your income. You can check that out now and see what you're eligible for. If you're not eligible, tax credits now. If you are eligible, rebates coming probably within a year. That's super helpful. And again, we're rolling, waiting for them to sort of make their way through all the state legislatures, correct, to figure out how those are going to be doled out and when? I think it's going to go through the state energy offices. But there are laws that are being written now. I'm not 100. Our policy team knows more about this, but there's like a bill in Oregon, I believe, trying to pave the way for when the rebates come. It's not clear to me uh, how they're going to be administered by the states, but it is going to be you know federal government giving guidance to the individual states and then the states administering the program. Okay. Awesome. Next one. This is from Justin. I've heard that some things like incentives for switching to an electric range are on a state-by-state -state basis. If I were to purchase an electric range now, would I be eligible for incentives whenever my state does announce it? Or does it totally depend on when the states announce? So it's a little bit more detail on the question we just asked. I think what he's asking is if I buy it, do I get a rebate later? I'm not sure. Like, is there anything retroactive, I guess? So I think there are some states that already have, uh, or certainly there are some states that already have electrification rebates at the state level or at the kind of regional utility level. Some folks might be all, you know, already eligible for those rebates. In terms of the IRA rebates, though, uh, just like Joel said, the timeline for those is going to vary a little bit, you know, state by state. I think the states that have bigger energy office staffs and you know are able to kind of you know lift up this new rebate program more quickly and have the you know the staff and know-how capacity to do that are going to be quicker and then other states who don't there's there are a few states who don't even have a state energy office those states are probably going to be further behind on rolling out their state rebate program with the ira funding if he needs to wait for financial reasons there doesn't seem to be any like hey if i buy that now they'll give me credit later besides the tax rebate, like things that haven't kicked in. I doubt it. Historically, similar rebate programs like, you know, uh, RF funding from a decade or more ago, you had to wait okay. for the rebate program to roll out and you could not do stuff. Okay, that's super helpful. Which, which in, in my opinion, just quickly, that's the point of an incentive. If, you know, you're trying to incentivize somebody to do something that they wouldn't have sure. done otherwise or to do it more quickly than they would have done otherwise. And if you're paying people a bunch of money to do stuff that they already did, that's kind of a waste of uh, sure. that's kind of a waste of money from an incentive program standpoint. John raises an excellent point, which is the you know the federal government has this Inflation Reduction Act income qualified rebate that is going to be rolled out next you know hopefully late this year, early next year. They have tax credits, which are like deductions. You have to pay up front, and then you get some money back if you owe enough taxes. 
That's available right now. And there's also, as he points out, lots of state and utility incentives that are also available right now, depending on where you live. If you're waiting for the upfront discounts because you're income qualified, yeah, it might be another year or so. But if you have an emergency situation before then, you are eligible for the tax credits and for local incentives. If you need to do it before the rebates are available, you should definitely look into whatever money is available. And it's a good idea to plan ahead now. You know, look around now, get some quotes now so that if there is an emergency and you do need to get it done, you're prepared and you know what's available. Yeah. And I think we've tried to make that point quite a bit. And John hammered uh, to me as well. Like I was in such a lucky situation to be like, oh, my current heat pump might die at some point. (laughs) Do it now. As opposed to like middle of the night, my family's freezing. I call and they go, guess what? We got a gas pump. That's what you got. Here's a good one from Connie, who's a landlord. Thank you for Connie for trying to do the right thing. Where can I get rid of my 1930s Wedwood range? Wedgewood range. Wedgewood range. Where can she throw it in the trash? How does this work? Well, you would probably take it to our local metals recycling place, uh, and they would break it down into, it's probably mostly steel, maybe a little bit of something else in there. Metals recycling facilities are typically available all over the place because that's one of the few recycling streams that are actually still profitable. Whole different conversation, John. Whole different conversation. Oh, sorry, sorry. Local metals recycling facility that can that'll take that. Um, okay, for sure. And they'll probably even give you, uh, you know, a little bit of money for that scrap metal value. Yeah, you can also try searching like you know the name of your town and like appliance disposal or something like that uh, for those kinds of recycling centers. Um, but there's a related question, uh, which is that sometimes people say. One, should I get rid of my stuff before it dies? Or two, if I am going to get rid of it, should I sell it or should I just trash it? And uh, the answer is sure, if you can afford to get to either uh, get rid of it early before it dies, like she, I don't know if her Wedgwood range is still working or not, but um, passing it along or reselling it, if it makes financial sense, it's not ideal, but it can be okay. Our, our general approach is like plan for when things die, replace it early if you can, Get rid of them properly. That's this question. If you need to resell it, it's not ideal, but you know, eventually it will die, and then hopefully, every all the ones that you are able to buy used after that will be electric. Sure, I'm all for circular economy here, 100. percent But again, the the overall goal is to move to things powered by lightning. All right, we're going to get a little more detailed here. This is from Megan. My house has gas appliances for almost everything: gas clothes dryer, gas stove, range plus oven, two gas HVAC furnaces and a gas water heater, unfortunately. I'm planning on buying an electric dryer and induction cooktop first, and then tackling the other places. Is it safe enough to turn the gas hookup off at each appliance once I get an electric appliance, but leave it in place? What does removing the gas lines and gas meter once everything is switched out entail? And I'm not able to find information online about fully removing the gas lines from my house and how much that would cost, so any guidance would be helpful. This is a good one. I feel like this one definitely applies to a lot of folks. I can definitely um, lend our experience from here in Charlottesville, Virginia. The stuff involving the meter and everything out to the street, uh, I'm sure varies a lot from gas utility to gas utility. But here's how it works here in Charlottesville. Inside the house, uh, yes, you can turn off the valve at each appliance that you're turning off or removing. Can I pause you there? Should a professional turn it off or should she turn it off? Closing a valve on the gas line should be not too dissimilar to closing a valve on a water-using appliance. I don't think there's there's not a a safety risk there, in my opinion. 
you know, disconnecting it is another issue, another topic. Um, so turning off the valves, I think that's that's fine. In terms of inside the house, removing pipes, that should be done by a professional here that's typically either a plumber or an HVAC contractor or there's some gas pipe fitter specialties as well. So it's typically going to be one of those three professional trades. And so they can remove everything out to the meter uh, if you like, or you can abandon it kind of in place. Small note in terms of turning stuff off at the valves, you may still have a little bit of methane leakage. So it's not, it's a, it's, it's a fine, like short term, one to two year tops kind of thing. Um, but eventually you do want to kind of get everything shut off at the meter and actually disconnect it. Once you have everything gone from your house from a gas standpoint, you call the gas utility and tell them you want to uh, cancel your service or disconnect your service. They're going to come out and shut off the valve at the meter, probably put a lock on it. Uh, and then they may or may not want to remove it. Um, so here in Charlottesville, if you request them to remove it, they will come out and do it. This is our experience so far. And at least in one case, they actually went so far as to uh, dig up their branch pipe in the front yard all the way out and dug up the street and disc and capped it at that T, at that branch from the, uh, from the main. That's how it works here. And that was all done at the utilities expense. I don't know if that is going to continue. I know that uh, that varies a lot from place to place. So it'll be interesting to see what everyone's experience is uh, as we get deeper and deeper into, you know, you know, growing numbers of of buildings wanting to completely disconnect from the gas network. Fascinating. The benefit is that once you cap the gas line, then you no longer have to pay the gas company the monthly connection fee. And so that's another savings. And I, I tried to get uh, Rewiring America to go with uh, pop a cap on that gas, but it was not approved. Come on, Joel. We got to do better, buddy. <laughs> we have a great photo of uh, the entire collection of gas fittings that we carry on our work vehicles. And uh, my my business partner, Neil, is showing a picture of him holding in his hands a gas pipe plug and a gas pipe cap. That's all of the fittings that we carry for, for gas appliances. Just just stuff to turn them off and shut them down. It's like you guys are Game of Thrones with like heads on sticks, except for it's gas fittings. <laughs> We've actually had a lot more propane and heating oil conversion electrifications than we have gas there's various reasons for that but um yeah we're, we're looking forward to more and more meter removals and we have a couple of those coming up pile them up hey everyone it's quinn your host and the founder of important not important i'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about the ini or any whatever we're calling it these days membership and community. It's a gathering place, really, for our most dedicated shit-givers. A place to connect and learn from one another and to have access to me outside of the newsletter and this podcast. We started it last year, and it's grown to hundreds of shit-givers from all kinds, from around the globe. I'm talking about teachers and investors, students, electricians, journalists, artists, scientists, and policymakers, and, and more. Members get exclusive access to our daily news homepage, which is very cool, and to much more top-of-mind weekly articles, 
research tools that you can use and to stay ahead of the game, member sourced action steps, twice monthly book and culture recommendations that have nothing to do with the end of the world, virtual events, and of course, the membership Slack channel. Look, so many people come to us asking, what can I do? And we think we do a pretty good job of answering that question and providing context for the answer. But the best answers and the best perspective really come from the community, a wide-ranging community, and we would love for you to be a part of it, to feel supported yourself, and to contribute to discussions and actions alike. And of course, by becoming a member, you're directly supporting our work here and ensuring that we get to keep doing it. So if you'd like to learn more, head to importantnotimportant.com. And if you're already a reader, you can just hit the upgrade button at the top. If you're not, Go ahead and subscribe for free and you'll see the option to become a member at whatever level works best for you. And as always, you can always find the link to become a member right in your show notes. So thanks for listening. And as always, thanks for giving a shit. Back to the show. All righty, next one. Here we go from Carol. Thanks, Carol. Assuming that gas stove ventilation, plumbing tightness, and air adjustment to get maximum combustion are optimum, what is the magnitude of the problem using gas cooktop burners versus gas oven? Can you compare bottled gas and propane versus natural gas and methane versus health issues and emissions-wise? Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of energy audits? Those are two different questions, but might be helpful. There's a fair amount of folks out there, like you were just saying, uh, with, with propane. My understanding is that the gas and, you know, uh, methane or, or, you know, natural gas, fossil gas versus propane uh, carry all of the same health-related risks, and they carry all of the same problems in terms of greenhouse gas emissions uh, from both the methane leaks uh, and the carbon dioxide emissions when you burn it. From a health and climate standpoint, you can think of them as being the same thing. I know we did this on our show, but maybe the 30-second version of, like, what is a real proper useful energy audit? What are like, what's the bullet list of what's done? And really, I guess, how much does, can that typically, I don't want to say pay off for someone, but besides if you choose to do all the things, make it more comfortable, you know, how do people really benefit? So like, what are the main things that a real one should in case someone comes out and it's like, your home's fine. For us, you know, we want to understand the house, you know, how the house is built, as much information as we can about it. And we want to understand the client's goals so that we can help propose solutions that are kind of matching up with both. Like if their goals are going to yield an unsafe house or an undurable, you know, a not durable solution, that's not a solution. But, you know, we don't want to propose those two. So we want to try to find the overlap. In terms of kind of what we target, in terms of, you know, what we're looking at during, we call them home performance consultation, not an energy audit. Um, but, it, you know, people call them different things. It does vary a little bit, but I think, you know, certainly... We're doing a uh, what's called a blower door air, air tightness test for uh, nearly every single consult that we do because that information is extremely useful, almost you know almost critical, critically useful for figuring out what size heat pump is going to be the right size. You know what heating and cooling capacity is needed for that house when it's time to do the replacement. So that's really critical. We try to look at any insulation that we can get our eyes on. We're looking at that, a quick infrared camera scan for anything that's hidden, window performance, and then 
quick data collection on all of the existing heating and cooling systems, water heating, and then to a lesser extent, uh, lights and, and other major appliances. Usually we're in a client's home because they are considering either now or in the you know several year near future, considering an HVAC replacement or an electrification. And if that's the case, we're probably going to collect a little bit more data. In if it's a ducted system, we're going to collect some uh, airflow information to see if the duct work as is, is really suitable or if it needs modifications, or if it needs to ideally be scrapped and start over. Or, you know, we kind of will often offer, you know, those different options to the client and talk about the pros and cons. A lot of times it comes down to budget of those different options in terms of whether or not we're replacing ductwork or whether or not we're, we're fixing ductwork or we're just leaving everything as is. We're in the middle of a job right now where we're replacing two different systems and one is a little bit newer and is in much better shape and we're just leaving that ductwork as is and just swapping out the heat pump and then the other one is older very bad shape and we're just scrapping it and starting from scratch so two related questions one shorter answer is there money in the ira for home performance assessments audits there's up to uh 30 percent off up to 150 dollars, and that's a tax credit that's available now so if you were to get a audit done or performance assessment, et cetera, um, you can claim that on your taxes next year. In addition, there's many utilities uh, in particular, and I think some states that will help pay for the audit as well. So where I live here in Maryland, uh, I think our utility will pay 300 out of $400. So it's only hundred bucks. And then I can then take $30 off of that too. So I could get a home energy audit for $70. And the the benefits that could, the waterfall from that could be enormous year over year. Totally. Right? Like, you know, ideally um, if before you get a heat pump, absolutely get a performance consultation, figure out what your home needs. The lower hanging fruit is to seal leaks in your house, upgrade your insulation, and then you can reduce the needs of your heat pump. Uh, and the better sized your heat pump can be, the better it's going to perform and the longer it's going to last. So timing-wise, ignore rebates and money for a moment. John, would you, obviously the answer is like, hey, everybody should do these and, and do them as soon as you can uh, you know, afford to do them and it makes sense to do them. Would you ever recommend folks do them as they're considering buying a house like as as part of that, would you ever consider that as like almost part of inspections type of thing? Is there a world where that becomes more commonplace or does it just not make sense? Every now and then we do consults uh, for clients who are considering buying a house or about you know, are in the process of closing on a house. I think it's it's a great opportunity to, you know, uh, you know sit down with someone and really talk about their goals, especially their goals, especially if they're planning on being in that house for, you know, for a good long while and really help them set up a plan, whether it's a short-term plan or a longer-term plan, depending on what their goals and budget are for making sure they have, you know, a comfortable, healthy, efficient house. So I guess the only thing you would lose, unless I'm missing something in that case, is sort of how a family lives, like they're historical. Right. Yeah. They don't have that opportunity to, you know, to live in the house and say, oh, this bedroom is too cold in the winter and it's too hot in the summer or, you know, or the basement is always cold. I want to fix that. They won't. Right. They won't have but that you stuff. also won't have like, I know you said you like the Ecobees because you can pull all the data, like how literally forget what I've told you. Like you can see what we've done and see how the system works and they probably won't have that, I guess, unless the thermostat sticks around. Yeah, you won't have that bit of history that is available 
for some, you know, for some clients who are already in their homes. Okay, that's helpful. Here's a good one. So all this is super fun, a break from the nerdy part of this. And and I think there's a few places that are starting to do this now, but I definitely get this question a lot. From Krista, how do I find a reputable contractor who knows how to properly install these things, especially heat pumps, for her example, in her area of Colorado? So... John, I think I actually asked you, emailed you this question recently. Like, what? how do people find these folks right now? It's tough. It definitely varies from place to place. I can, you know, you know, specifically for Colorado, I can give a shout out to two firms who are not, I, as far as I know, they're not contractors themselves, but they are basically working as owner's reps uh, to bring in the contractors, get the right heat pump installed, and make it a pain-free experience and something that is a win-win for everybody. And those two groups are uh, Elephant Energy, who works in Boulder, probably up and down the near front range, maybe you know into Denver as well, and then uh, Helios, who is uh, also based in Denver. So those two groups are doing Know, good work in uh, in Colorado from what I hear. That's awesome. Neil, do you have any insight on the people who are aggregating this? Is this what SEALED does? S-E-A-L-E-D? Is this some of the things they facilitate? I'm not 100% sure, but I feel like there's such a market for this. I'm, I'm not 100% sure about SEALED either. For Colorado, I, I did actually look this up. There's a rebate. Often in states, if there's a rebate program that's administered by the state or the utility, they might require you to use a contractor that has enrolled into their program. So for Colorado, there's a thing called uh, Renew, R-E-N-U, uh, which is a loan program. And they have an authorized contractor map where you can search for somebody that way. Also, Excel Energy, which is out there, they have a rebate with a registered contractor list that you can pick from. California has Tech Clean California, uh, which is a rebate program for heat pumps and heat pump water heaters, and they maintain a list of contractors. Efficiency Maine has a contractor list. If you don't live in one of those states, you could try contacting your state energy office. We could put a link in the show notes to how to do that. Okay. And then the, the general advice we give is to try and find one is to ask friends, family, colleagues, whatever, if especially somebody who has the appliance that you're looking for, for who did the work and if they're happy with it. And uh, try and get three quotes from, you know, reputable places that will, will tell you what equipment you need, uh, give you a price, and then you can, you know, look, look them up online and, and see their reputation and decide or not to decide go, to go with them. Okay, that seems reasonable. Also seems like, boy, it would be great if somebody really just found a way to really aggregate these in, a, you know, the most reputable, intentional folks here. Here's a kind of more expansive question, but... I guess it's more fully considering the whole thing. Paul says, I'm curious if I may save carbon by not replacing working gas equipment before it. So obviously we want everyone to electrify and we need to do this as soon as possible. I think he's asking more just like about the secondary effects of just everyone replacing a bunch of equipment that's still working. Right. So he's kind of getting at what's called the embodied carbon of the existing equipment and, uh, uh, or the embodied carbon of you know bringing something in new, so it takes you know it takes energy, and currently it takes emissions to manufacture all of this stuff to ship it where it needs sure. to go, and as well to bring in the contractors. They've probably got to drive in from somewhere to do the work. Yeah. So uh, are you saving enough CO two emissions? You know, plus other you know methane emissions. And I think the answer is probably yes. You are in most cases. The combined CO2 and methane emissions savings are 
huge for heating systems when you switch to an efficient heat pump. Uh, and they're also huge when you switch to heat pump water heaters. So those two right there, I think it's pretty straightforward to say that the emission savings make sense to do it right away. If you've got the, if you've got the budget for it and uh, then yeah, just go ahead and go for it. On the cooking side of things from an emission standpoint, it's not quite as a slam dunk to use a sports term, uh, but it is a total slam dunk from an indoor health standpoint. So that's, a, that's an obvious call, I think, still. It becomes far less negligible over time, right? Because because these emission savings, forget the health ones, like the emissions reductions just compound over the 10 to 12 year lifespan of these devices. Right. right. All of your things that you're putting in that run on electricity, they effectively get cleaner and cleaner and cleaner every year they operate. Okay. Unless you live in Costa Rica right now. I mean, I told you, I'm, I'm trying to get out of here and nobody will let me go. <laughs> this seems pretty common. It's like, I currently have a functioning gas, hot water and gas heating, right? Um, that's right now. And they're going to break at some point. And so yeah. make a plan to replace them with electric because what's sure. probably going to happen in most cases is if you don't have a plan, they're going to break and then you're going to replace them with a fossil fuel appliance that's going to have another 10 to 20 years of life. So in trying to thread the needle of, oh, I don't want to replace it too early, you don't, then you replace it too late. And, it's not black or white. Yeah. And right, then you got another right. 20 years. Plan. Make sure. a plan. Find your contractors okay. early. Yep. Identify contract. Get quotes early so you know who to call. Maybe yeah. for the heat pump water heater, if it's going to be a 240-volt uh, outlet that they need, then get that pre-wired. Find somebody who's got them or can get them in stock and just be prepared so that in the emergency, you don't get – You know, it's like trying to save six months of carbon yeah. and then having 20 years of it on the other end. Sure. That's legit. Right. Yeah. I like to, you know, most people who are, you know, you don't say shopping for a new vehicle for their household, it's usually not on an emergency basis. They usually are planning this out, you know, for, you know, at least several months. And, sure. you know, think of these big, you know, household purchases in the same way. Definitely start sure. doing your research, start planning them out. Yeah. And you'll have a, a much better, much better experience. From Tita, Tita. Can you please sell me on the improvements of a heat pump water heater over a tankless water heater? I guess what's the what's the quick answer there? Is it that much better? Because Lord knows I was bamboozled a few years ago. So tankless gas water heaters versus heat pumps. I think the selling point for the tankless water heaters is that you have quote endless hot water. That's um, what they told for me. Better or worse. Right. To a certain extent, you do, but those units have to heat up the water instantly, essentially. And so they have a limited capacity. So they have you know, a limited you know, throughput or gallons per minute of hot water that they can generate that is all dependent on how cold the incoming water is. So it may be unlimited, but it may be unlimited at two gallons per minute. You can't run uh, you know, probably three showers at the same time and all have adequate hot water supply unless you get multiple thankless, you know, gas water heaters. Whereas with a uh, heat pump water heater that has a storage tank, you have a, you know, tank that is, you know, maybe 50 or 60 or 80 gallons of hot water standing ready to go at 120, 130, maybe even 140 degrees temperature. And so you have all of that water, you know, ready to go, you know, at a moment's notice. And it doesn't have to be 
um, heated up instantly. So the heat pump water heater is kind of like slow and steady with a whole bunch of storage that's ready to go. And the tankless is like zero storage, but we can do a lot of work right away. Okay. That's super helpful. So the other way to think about the heat pump water heater is uh, it's sort of like a water battery for heat. So you're taking electricity and you're pumping the heat in there and then it's storing the electricity as hot water. And you can do that pretty much any time of the day. So it can be useful for figuring out when is a good time to, uh, if you have solar panels, you want to save electricity and not pump it back to the grid during the day, you can store it in your water heater. And they're way more efficient. Uh, so it uses only a quarter of energy needed to heat up hot water that even the tankless needs. So it makes sense from an energy use and an emissions point of view. By having the tank, it lets you slowly accumulate heat, which the tankless can't do. And it's way more efficient if you have a tank, a natural gas or t resistance heating hot water heater. Heat pump water heaters are now the most efficient. Some people kind of thought in the middle that tankless was the most efficient. And I think maybe for a little while it was, but they now get blown away by the heat pump water heaters. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The, the running costs for heat pump water heaters are super, super low across the board for our family and, and our clients. And correct me if I'm wrong, and we have the link in our in our email and we'll put it in the show notes. Again, there is a 120 volt version now, which you literally just plug into the wall, right? That's pretty incredible. Yeah, there's one, at least from one manufacturer, and I think there's another on a, on the way from one of the other big manufacturers. That's such a game changer. Yeah, I think that it's going to make that retrofit easier sure. uh, for, you know, for more situations. Awesome. All right. Lynn in New York says, we got a heat pump water heater over a year ago to replace a water heater that ran off a zone of our oil burner, which we weren't using because we had installed mini split heat pumps to heat and air condition our whole house. The problem with the water heater is that it's making our basement so cold that we can no longer work down there. A thermometer at three feet above the floor reads 40 degrees. Is there any way to vent the cold air, again from a heat pump water heater, outside so the basement won't be so cold? And that's because they're dehumidifying, right? They're taking heat energy from the air and dumping it into the water tank, the, gotcha. the heat battery, essentially. Yeah. So by doing so, by you know removing heat, you're you're making a space cooler. I'm I'm surprised, but I they've got the data there. So I'm surprised they're getting that low down to 40 degrees. Uh, our, in our experience, we don't typically, you know, see that much of a drop. But um, in terms of venting the cold air to the outside in New York State, that's not likely to be helpful because any air that you send out is going to be replaced by air coming in through various leaks and cracks in your house. So anytime, you know, any air that leaks out gets replaced by air that's leaking in or any air that's pushed out by a fan is going to get replaced. So in New York state, I'm not sure exactly where, but let's say if it's 30 degrees outside and the heat pump is pushing out maybe you know, initially maybe 50 or 55 degree discharge air, you're going to send out 55 and you're going to bring in 30. And so you're going to make your house colder. Now your basement is going to be warmer. Mm -hmm. So that part is true, but your your whole house is going to be increasing the heat losses for your house 
uh, and making the the replacement heat needed higher that your mini split heat pump has to do for for conditioning the whole house. Yeah, my my understanding is that they do the the heat pump water heater will drop the temperature of a uh, the space that they're in by a few degrees because it basically is an air conditioner that is running, but instead of blowing the hot air outside, it's blowing the heat into the water. If it's dropping significantly, like she's saying, then it could potentially make sense to get an energy audit and see if there's some larger problem that is causing a very cold basement. So rather than punching another hole in the wall, and like John says, you know, dumping that cold air only to be replaced by potentially even colder air, why don't you just try and see if there's a more systemic problem that that might be able to solve, which would make the whole house better. Perfect. Alrighty. So this is a version of one that I'm sure you've both heard quite a bit, except it's essentially the question of, is a heat pump good enough for my cold weather? But this time we're talking about a heat pump water heater. So who's this person? Mark says, currently I'm running a propane powered 50 gallon Polaris hot water heater plumbed for radiant heat. I also have radiant heat tubes in the floors of my house and the heat source via heat exchanger is in the Polaris. I live in New Hampshire and recently we had a short spell of cold weather under negative 16 degrees at night and I had to supplement the heat with my wood stove, which makes me wonder. When it's 15 degrees or higher, the Polaris does fine. I have the water temperature turned most of the way up and have installed anti-scald units in my hot water pipes. Question is, would a heat pump water heater be adequate to replace the Polaris and still heat my house in that kind of weather? Sure. So we we have a couple of similar situations uh, with clients here in Charlottesville who have uh, fossil fuel fired uh, boilers that are serving different uh, hydronic or radiant zones. They're in these cases they're using radiators, but you know, sim- you know, it's a hot water heating system. The packaged heat pump water heaters that we were just talking about in the last question, those are typically installed indoors. So they're taking heat from indoors and putting it into your house. So you can't use that same appliance to heat your house because you're taking heat from your house. So you would just be running around in circles uh, like a dog chasing its tail uh, or my cat in my cat's case. What you would need from a heat pump standpoint is called a split system air to water heat pump or ground source to water heat pump that takes heat from the outdoor air and dumps it into your hot water, uh, you know, your, your water heating floor system, your radiant floor system, or a ground source or geothermal to water heat pump that can do the same thing, taking heat from the ground uh, in your yard and putting that into your in-floor radiant heat system. That's fascinating. Did not know that. I mean, how cool is that? My wife would kill to have warm floors. Oh my God. She can't listen to this part of the conversation, guys. I, I can also <laughs> say uh, there's a group up in Northern California called Redwood Energy, and they've put out a number of helpful guides, one of which is for home retrofits, for single family home retrofits. And we could put in the show notes, there is a page on that in that in the home retrofit guide about hydronic heat pumps. And I looked at it, a number of them do work down well below zero Fahrenheit. So it's something to explore. I don't know the exact particulars of the question, but that whole guide is worth getting for anybody, whether you have a hydronic heat pump or not. The first half has lots of good info. The second half is sort of like a product guide. It doesn't give reviews or anything, but it does do a good job of laying out the landscape for lots of different appliances. So hydronic, okay. it's more specialized, but it's in there along with things like, you know, electric leaf blowers and, you know, jet skis. Which are amazing, by the way. Holy cow, the first time I used one, I was like, what? Uh, There are not many air-to-water heat pumps 
or even ground source to water heat pumps. So there are not that many models or manufacturers that are available in North America right now. Totally different in the rest of the world. Um, but in North America, there's not that many. But the good news is that almost all of them are cold climate models. And okay. there, a number of them are really actually being marketed, you know, pretty well in the Northeast. So uh, I think this question was coming from New Hampshire. So there should be availability of those products and the know-how how to do them in those areas. Awesome. That's super helpful. Okay. So this is kind of marketing wise, but maybe you guys can can validate these or or no. Jeff says, I know I want to do a heat pump water heater. My question's about smart features. I've seen some pilot programs for smart features that make the hot water tank act as a thermal battery, charging up at low electrical demand periods and whatnot. Is this a standard feature of the heat pump water heater, or do I need to look especially for smart functionality with timers, Wi-Fi connectivity, and ideally some grid response functionality? From Jeff. So this is definitely variable from product to product and manufacturer to manufacturer. So some of the manufacturers are building this stuff in automatically where you can, A, you have the availability of, a, uh, of an app that you install on your phone or tablet, and then you can set up your own schedules. You have a time of use rates from your electrical utility. Most of the water heaters also have a special uh, communications port. That's a grid response port. And that is currently rarely used around the country. I think there's probably a couple of uh, places where, they're, where they are actually used. But it would be the kind of thing where you would give permission to your utility to, during certain times of day or, or an ongoing basis, you know, take control of your water heater and basically probably shut it off during certain times, maybe boost the temperature at certain times as well. So those programs vary from place to place. So I think most of the models that I've seen have that kind of grid response communication support built in. And then some models have kind of your, you know, the app and scheduling feature that you can do yourself and some don't. Okay. I mean, so I guess, let me ask the way I would ask. If I've got the money to do it, I need to do it or want to do it. Should I give a shit about these smart features now yet, or should I just do the thing? It mostly depends on your you know, personality and how much of, an, of a, a nerd or geek you are. Uh, and if you're really getting, if you're really into this stuff, if you just, you know, want to have an efficient water heater that works and is a lot better, you know, for the planet, then I, you don't need to worry about it too much. Okay. Um, and a lot of that is because the heat pump water heaters are so efficient that even if it does get some runtime during a little bit more expensive times of day, you know, for most people, it's not going to hurt their wallet too much. But if you really want to optimize things and you're sure. willing to do a little bit more of your own setting up schedules and things like that, you can do that. And I think at some point, I think we'll have more and more kind of aggregators who will do this for you where you'll maybe set up the app, connect it to your appliance, and then you'll assign control to sure. a third party. Maybe you assign control to the utility, or maybe it's to some other trusted third-party firm who's an aggregator and is doing all of this, you know, is doing this for thousands of water heaters right. and do, maybe doing a better job of it than the utility or, you know, kind of communicating the uh, the benefits um, and what they're planning on doing than, than the utilities who are, Often they tend to be a little bit more conservative and slow on the uptake in terms of 
communications and things like that. Just, just, to, just to add on to that, that is a great answer. And like, you can try and future proof it by checking out the spec sheet to see if it has the you know time of day functions and whatever. It does get to this larger question though, both around you know aggregators of demand, where the utility might say, "Hey, we need to reduce our power use." who can do that and these people will yeah. essentially be able to manage that and get paid for it because it's sort sure. of like spinning up they sometimes call them virtual power plants but the most expensive power plants sure. are the ones that you need in that emergency and so like doing some of that planning not just around water heaters because john's right they're pretty they're so efficient that it's a pretty low load but things like your car right. and things like your you know even your heat pump um, yeah. and your bat and your home batteries when you start to think about it that way, then it's like, oh, this is a potential source of revenue. I know a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want the government messing with my appliances. And that's like, that's your option. You don't have to be a part of that program. Sure. But it's a, it's a deeper question, obviously. This person cares more. And so if you want to kind of future-proof and option into these things in the future, then it can pay off to look into it for your storage appliances now. Looking a little bit further ahead into the future, in terms of these kinds of controls, there may, there most likely will be significant time periods of the year or time periods of the day and year where there's excess renewable energy, there's excess clean energy, and the wholesale energy prices actually go to zero. And there's some producers who will actually give the energy away for free or maybe even pay some people to take some energy off their hands mm. so that they don't have to turn their stuff off, especially nuclear power plants are probably not going to want to turn their stuff off. They're going to want to keep running. And so there may be times where these aggregators or, you know, if you're controlling it yourself, you may say, oh, I've got a two hour window where I can heat my water for free. So let's go ahead and do that. And if you have a most packaged heat pump water heaters have an electric resistance heating element as well. You may actually want to turn on the less efficient heating electric heating element for those two hours so that you can take more of that free energy, that clean energy, and heat up your water totally clean, totally free, or even get paid for it rather than letting the heat pump do it. So it's just a it's an interesting thing that I think will will become uh, prevalent in the in the years to come. It, it'll be a I think it's going to be a wonderful, that part of the variability of, uh, of renewable yep. energy is going to be really interesting uh, and awesome. The super cold parts of the year are going to be the big challenge. Yeah. No, I love that. I mean, I, I, I truly hope the flexibility of, of this two-way stuff, whether it's home batteries, car batteries, all these other things become, you know, go beyond whatever, you know, the Nest or Ecobee Leaf or whatever, which is just like the baby drips. But again, we, we can we can hopefully do these things and become more useful. So the West doesn't have these just massive blackouts and Texas doesn't have these issues. And, you know, obviously there's much bigger systemic issues, but we should be able to do that. So again, I would nerd out and go after the nerdiest stuff that my wife would be like, but we don't need those things. I'm like, but we do. And need is a very strong word. <laughs> At the same time, like if you're like, oh, but the nerdy stuff isn't there, just like, please get one if you can get one. You know, it's the yeah, overall yeah. goal is to just decarbonize as much as we can. I've got one more question for you guys, and this is actually an interesting one. Um, I'd heard from a couple people. I think, John, you might be able to speak to this. So his name is Matt. I assume it's a gentleman, maybe not. Says, I'm not sure I have space for a heat pump water heater. And the noise they make concerns me since the current location is directly under my eight months old room in a utility closet. That's about four by six. He said, I'm considering a tankless water heater, but your article seems mildly critical of them. 
You're welcome. So we already covered the critiques of tankless models a few minutes ago and in the article itself. So I'm going to reframe this as, let's say we're like, no, hey, Matt, we would really love for you to get this, but we do acknowledge that they can make some noise, kind of like how induction stoves can make those noises sometimes. Is there any sort of construction he could do in that utility closet or installation-wise to muffle that to make use of it? I'm trying to accomplish both goals here while acknowledging that these things can be a little louder. There's definitely some sound mitigation that they could do inside the closet in terms of adding, you know, kind of sound buffering materials. Um, uh, bat insulation is a, is a fairly good sound buffering material. And there's other, you probably have some sound buffering materials in the tiny room you're in right now, Quinn. A truly torture chamber. Yeah. Yeah. So things like that. The other technique, uh, some of the noise is from airflow. So sometimes we will, you know, duct that air within the house, duct it to another location or mm. you know, directly outside of the room. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, I think the manufacturers certainly hear it loud and clear that noise is a concern in a lot of installations. You know, sometimes it's an unfinished basement and it's just sure. not a problem. Yeah. But in there's a you know a ton of other houses that don't have the basement uh, and need to it needs to go into a utility closet that's near regular living spaces or near bedrooms. And I think they're really working on driving down the amount of noise okay. that we have. We're installing a brand new model in the next couple of weeks that has on paper a super, super low sound rating. So we're pretty excited to test that out in the real world to see if it lives up to the to the manufacturer specs. Awesome. We want to do this thing both on an individual level so people can have a more comfortable home and a more efficient home and a less expensive home. And obviously, we want to push the overall goal of decarbonize as much and as fast as, as we possibly can. But you also want to meet people where they are, where they're like, no, Jeff has one of these and it's loud and it's really annoying. Like, I can't put that under a kid's bedroom. I get that. For sure. I have three children. If they don't sleep, my not, my life is a nightmare. There are potentially two other options, maybe. One is a more expensive split system where the compressor would right. be outside and the tank would be outside, but that is somewhat considerably more expensive. Another could be because heat pump water heaters don't have exhaust outside, they don't have to stay in that utility closet. It would require some additional plumbing, but it could potentially go in the garage. If it's warm enough, it, it could potentially even go outside and they just plug hmm. the water in. I don't know if, John, you do that down there, but those are options. And then just check the spec to see what, check the spec sheet of the one that you're considering and try and get the quietest one possible. Okay. Where we are, we're kind of borderline warm enough to put stuff like that in the garage. You definitely would take an energy hit, but as you get it to the warmer states, there's that's just normal place to put a water heater is out is out in the garage if, if you're in a house that has a garage. Awesome. Well, listen, that's what we've got for now. There were about 40 others, uh, but they're not, uh, either they were redundant or crossed over in some way or, or we're not quite there yet, or I could answer them, which is dangerous. So listen, I'm sure we'll have more. This is I, truly, I think, profoundly helpful. And I know you guys answer this stuff all day, but you know, the more people we can incrementally help along the journey, uh, the better. So thank you very much, uh, folks. If again, these didn't answer yours, if you have new ones, you encounter it, your state actually gets their shit together and you start to see some of this money again, send them in and we'll, we'll keep trying to help folks. John and his crew are amazing what they're doing. Uh, and John's on Twitter, uh, yelling at people in a proactive way all the time. Uh, and Joel's shop at rewiring America. The calculator is just so helpful. It's fantastic. So check out those resources. We'll put everything in the show notes and, uh, we'll probably do another one of these, uh, in a little while.
to try to move things along. So folks, thank you very much. John and Joel, thank you. Go about your days. Uh, have a wonderful weekend and uh, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Quinn. Thanks a lot. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for listening to the show. A reminder, you can send feedback or questions about this episode or some guest recommendations to me at questions at importantnotimportant.com. Links to anything we talked about today are in your show notes, in your podcast player. If you want to rep any or your shit giver status, you can find sustainable t-shirts, hoodies, and a variety of coffee delivery vessels in our store at importantnotimportant.com slash store. You can subscribe to our critically acclaimed weekly newsletter for free at newsletter.importantnotimportant.com. Our theme music was composed by Tim Blaine. The show was edited by Anthony Luciani, and the whole episode was produced by Willow Beck. We'll see you next time.